0: Welcome to the Average Intelligence Podcast. I am your co host, and as you saw in the title, it's another solo special. Um, I apologize in advance for the informal nature of this one. This was not planned. Um, as our regular viewers know, Eric had uh, an emergency appendix surgery, and he's having some issues with that. So, in lieu of foregoing this week, because I know you all love our content and the sweet sweet sound of my velvety voice. I decided to jump in and do a solo special. And actually, I've kind of been wanting to talk about this anyway, so it kind of works out. So I get to get on my soapbox for approximately an hour, and we'll have some fun. We're going to talk about inflation. And not the sexy kind, the money kind. But before that, hmm. hydration for all of you listening on the audio platforms. Before that, we have a couple of quick announcements. I won't spend too much time on this because I want to dig into the inflation. But first of which, I want to remind everybody about our crypto giveaway. I'm not going to go into all of it again, but if you want the opportunity to win $20 worth of BAT token, uh, there's a video on the YouTube page, and you can watch last week's episode, the crypto episode. Watch or listen and share it with your friends after you get them to subscribe, and it counts towards your... Uh, winning of the group of the potential crypto for the details. And like I said, there's a standalone video on the channel that gives all the details, all the rules and how to go about it. And then our other announcement is, apart from the guest host of Dr. Fauci, which will be coming sooner rather than later, uh, we've got a very exciting, and I'm not going to give away any details, but if he's watching, you know who you are. We're going to have a really awesome guest on the podcast. Actually, it'll be our... It'll be our first no. It'll be our set our second Zoom guest. I forgot the Podcast Mania too with me and Ben, which you can watch more of our wrestling content on the Down the Middle podcast, which is on the Arte Media channel and all the same audio platforms which you enjoy the uh, the uh, Average Intelligence podcast on. Alrighty, but that's coming soon. Um, like I said, don't have the details finalized set in stone yet, but they will be coming soon. I want to remind everyone that the super chat is open for the live broadcast. So if you have questions, comments, concerns, or if you just want to heckle me, feel free to use that. All right, let's get right into it. And I'm in a unique position to talk about this because those of you that know me personally know my uh, my day job essentially. And I've it's it's been an interesting year. And not trying to toot my own horn, I've been right about most of it, and some of it hasn't yet come to pass. So. But we'll get into it so there's a lot of talk particularly if you're watching the news that inflation is rising and it's there's going to be a bad economic turn and everyone not everyone but pretty much everyone in the media is kind of freaking out you know what are we going to do what are we going to do and the first thing i'd like to point out is that nobody was talking about inflation when covid was at its height and the only reason i bring up covid is because this whole inflation cycle was caused by mostly by the reaction to COVID, but it was either because of directly or in response to COVID, which is why I'm not terribly concerned with this inflation. I'm not even going to call it an inflation cycle. I'm going to call it an inflation spike, and we'll get into why that is here in just a second. But the first thing I want to tell everybody is that – well, first, a disclaimer – I am not a financial expert I've just seen a lot of crazy shit happen and I've lived through it lived through and like I've seen the demographics everyone who watches us has lived through the, the housing crisis of 08 and you know all that stuff so we've we've seen our fair share of economic downturns um, I don't think this will be that bad frankly um, because we kind of have the opposite problem that we did in 08 where in a way, there was obviously a lot of people lost their houses. There was an influx of inventory, but nobody could afford to buy it. And right now, we have so little inventory that the people who can afford to buy it can't seem to find a house. Um, but I digress. See I apologize in advance for the informal nature of this because I didn't get a chance to do the outline. I didn't know it was going to be a solo special until later. But so basically, I just want to address kind of the fears of... Potential hyperinflation. Now, what I'm not going to say is that hyperinflation can't happen because it can, theoretically. Uh, I think a lot of things need to happen before that would be the case. And there's the old usual auto shutdown enabled. So let's see. What do we want to tackle first here? So let's let's first of all define some terms because I think it's important that when we're talking about this, we have to define what we're talking about when we say things like inflation and hyperinflation. So inflation is just over time, basically, the buying power of your currency goes down over time, which is pretty normal, seems to be as far as a long term track record, it's pretty normal. In fact, the average, um, Dave Ramsey said this the other day, the average, you know, inflation rate for the past 72 years annually has been about 4.2%, give or take. Which, not terrible. That's not pretty. That's not bad. Hyperinflation. Most economists agree that hyperinflation happens when the value of your currency drops a minimum of fifteen. Oh, sorry, fifty percent. And see, this is the problem. Without doing an outline, because now I cannot remember for the life of me. I'm gonna have to look this up because I don't want to give you long, wrong information. But it's basically if the value of a currency devalues by 50% or more within a given period of time. And I can't remember if it's a calendar year or 30 days. But here we go. Okay, definition. So we'll just. I'll just read you the definition because that's how we do. in 1956, Philip Kagan wrote the mon- wrote the monetary dynamics of hyperinflation. That's the book book often regarded as the first serious study of hyperinflation and its effects. Uh, do, 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 do. In the book, Kagan defined hyperinflation defined hyperinflationary episodes as starting in the month that the monthly inflation rate exceeds 50%. okay. So 50 percent in a month's time. So now we know the difference between inflation and hyperinflation. Now let's talk about what's happening in the U.S. right now. For the most part, apart from the natural inflation that's going to happen, there's basically two things going on. The first being that this is a completely artificial economic situation. And what I mean by artificial is the market did not drive it directly. The market has reacted to something. But what happened was COVID happened and virtually, well, not virtually, actually a lot of things remained open, but a lot of things got shut down, not just in the U.S. Around the world, pretty much everything shut down for the most part in most developed countries, particularly in places like China and in places where the government just has more control. But in the U.S. too, the U.S. saw a great amount of shutdown. And even if it didn't shut down completely, it slowed down. For example, Um, I deal a lot with Mohawk, which is a flooring manufacturer. And even at the beginning of the pandemic, before things were particularly bad, um, right after they started doing the shutdowns pretty much, we were having delays in getting product. And those delays were coming from the fact that they'd run out of the product they'd already made and they weren't making more or as much of a certain product, by about a year later, Mohawk had discontinued all of its full hardwood flooring line. And I never thought I would see that day come. Mohawk is synonymous with hardwood floor. At least they were. And they no longer make it. They no longer sell it. My my sales rep literally came in and said, pull all of your three quarter inch hardwood floor samples because we do not sell it anymore. Not making it. And they're not making it. Because they cannot mill it because they, for whatever reason, whether it be a shutdown or the fact that what was happening a lot in factories, too, is even though they had shifts, they had fewer amount of people on shifts for social distancing. And then if one of those people had a positive COVID test, that entire shift was taken out of the factory for two weeks to quarantine and do all the procedural things. This varied a little bit by state, but I know Mohawk was affected. I spoke to uh, people fairly high up in the company who knew this was going on. So this was not, you know, and this was a fairly common thing, obviously, because they discontinued literally all of their hardwood floor. And for those of you not familiar with it, I cannot stress enough to you how crazy that is that Mohawk floors no longer makes hardwood floors. They make engineered hardwood. That's a different product. That's plywood underneath one layer of wood. I'm talking about the solid wood, three quarter inch thick flooring. Um, typically what people mean when they say hardwood floors. That is wild. So what I'm driving home here is that this economic episode that we're in is almost entirely artificial. It was created by the government shutting down the country. Now, in my pretty atypical for me, or pretty typical for me, but atypical for the podcast, I'm going to sleep some shit both ways. Um... Give credit where credit's due when Trump – Trump never actually shut anything down. He basically left it up for the states, and they had guidelines, which I commend him for. Now, most states did shut down, at least in the beginning. Then enter the Biden administration, who, if you remember, when he was running, he was – he never came out and said that he was going to do a full federal shutdown, but he said he was open to the idea. And Trump never said he was open to the idea, at least not that I'm aware of. If he if he ever did say that, somebody correct me right now. Shoot your chats open. I will take your criticism with a smile because we care about the truth on the Average Intelligence Podcast. It's not about politics. It's just, uh, you know, we look at the way the world is and how it works and we uh, comment on it. That's what we do. But anyway, I digress. So this entire economic situation is a result of industry being shut down due to COVID-19. Now, let's play a little game here. Let, let's do a little thought experiment. And if you remember, people on the right were warning about this, and everyone was saying, "Well, you're just... How can you say that? That's just greedy. How can you possibly think..." That the economy is more important to human life. It's not. It's not. And I said all during the pandemic, I believe I said it on the podcast a couple of times, if we were talking about an Ebola outbreak, totally different situation. Shut that thing down. Shut it down. But again, and I'll catch some heat for this, as a population, as a whole, COVID-19 has been shown to be fairly benign. I understand there are groups that are at risk, but the point that I always make is that is true for pretty much every disease. There are age groups and health groups of people who, if they get the common cold, it can be deadly for them. We do not shut down the country for a rhinovirus. We do apparently shut down the country for a coronavirus. And I'm not trying to get too political here, but it kind of goes hand in hand considering this entire economic – not an economic collapse, but the – the infl- actually, you could probably more accurately refer to a stagflation episode. And stagflation is just an economic situation. Inflation is happening, but prices are going up, value of the currency – in this case, the dollar is going down. There is also still high unemployment and a slow, slow economic growth. So – more probably more accurate, excuse me, more accurate to say that we're in a stagflation episode. But this was caused by the government and their reaction to COVID-19. And again, I said from day one, I do not agree with this. I didn't agree with it on day one. In fact, when when uh, Governor Holcomb here in Indiana actually made the statement that Indiana was going into a, uh, a lockdown, The first thing I did was check the list of exceptions, which I think I've told the story before, but I'm going to recount it anyway because we got to fill an hour because that's what you people pay for. Actually, you don't pay for anything because this podcast is free, although we appreciate financial support. There are many ways you can do it. The links are in the description. But basically, the first thing I did was check the list of exceptions, and as I thought it would be the case, there's about six pages of businesses that were exempt from the shutdown order, not least of which being liquor stores. Because, you know, those are essential. And before all you alcoholics get mad at me, I understand. But I made the point that I was never really all that scared because the liquor stores were open. When they close liquor stores, that's when I'm concerned. When they won't let you buy booze because of a disease, that's when when I get into a bunker with MREs and ammunition. Because that means the shit has officially hit the fan. And I even said, I said to my, my business partner at the time, he was like, oh, we might have to shut down. I'm like, OK, no, because they can do one of two things. Um, they can either write me a fat check and then I'll close my business or they can kiss my hairy white ass. That's a direct quote. And the reason I said this is because, you know, if my business shuts down, I do not make money and I'm not the only business owner that felt that way. Now restaurants and the like they adapted fairly quickly, but it was rough. You know, it was rough, very rough. I know quite a few. I know quite a few local restaurants, especially that went out of business. I know national companies that went out of business, and of course, I'm trying to think of one right now. It's not coming to mind, but I'll probably remember it right after the podcast ends. But I'm sure you can all think of at least one. You know, one restaurant that as a chain went out of business during uh, the pandemic. Certainly local places, I am sure. And again, I ask, you know, was all that worth it? I would make the argument that no, it wasn't. And here's why. Because if a person was afraid of getting, <clears throat> excuse me, was afraid of getting COVID 19, they did not have to go into these restaurants. I understand the argument. I understand the argument completely about not wanting to accidentally transfer the disease to someone else but here's the thing grocery stores were open and i still maintain that was the most dangerous place to be because everybody was there i i remember i remember that i had to go to the grocery store just an insane amount of times during the pandemic you know, because I couldn't do anything else. And I had to cook at home more, which was a good thing for me. But, you know, I, I had to go to the store. I went to the store multiple times a week. And I used to go to the store once a week. Literally once a week, I would go to the grocery store and I was going multiple times a week because I would need to get more food or I would have forgotten something or I wanted to eat a certain thing that I hadn't bought. And they had all these rules and regulations posted. Nobody was doing them. Well, I shouldn't say nobody. Most people were not doing them or my personal favorite. They were doing it half assed, you know, like they'd be wearing a mask, but their nose would be out or, you know, nobody. I saw nobody adhering to the walk this way down the line thing in grocery stores, which that never made sense to me anyway. And I apologize in advance. I'm probably going to have to change my audio format here in a second because my headset's battery is low but I digress. We will continue going until you can't hear me anymore and then I will change it. Okay. So there's a no, there are a number of things people are afraid of for this economic collapse, uh, not economic collapse, this economic episode. They are afraid of an economic collapse because of a few things. One, a lot of people are pointing to the uh, price of well, materials, but plywood specifically. Plywood and lumber. But again, you know, it's just like what happened with Mohawk Plywood is not going up because of a naturally occurring phenomenon. It is going up because people were not making plywood for about a year, actually a year in some cases. Couple that with the fact that, I mean, wood building materials were already high in demand because there was actually a lot of home improvement going on and a lot of building going on because the United States as a whole already had already had a housing shortage. So people needed to build houses, they needed to build apartments, they needed to build multifamily units, they needed to build stuff, and they needed wood, plywood, and lumber to do it. Well, when you're already in the middle of, I wouldn't call it a building boom, but in a high level of building, and all of a sudden you're not making any more raw materials, it doesn't take a rocket scientist to figure out that the price of those materials is probably going to go up. While we're talking about defining terms, it's amazing to me how people, and especially people in government, forget terms like supply and demand. These are very, very basic things. You know, you have a low supply of something and a high demand for something. What happens? The price goes up again. This is not rocket science. So in the case of lumber, all that needs to happen is either the demand needs to go down, which it's not going to because people need places to live, and people want to buy houses. People want to live in places, so that's not going to happen, or the supply needs to go up, which is what needs to happen. Now, the really, really sad part about this is that because of the increased price of of lumber – and I can attest to this like nobody's business – because my business has seen price increases. Uh, I'll put it to you this way. Been in business a pro- just shy of seven years. And prior to, actually prior to the Trump tariffs, but and I encompassed that in with COVID because there was just a massive amount of price increases taking place since the Trump uh, tariffs on China up through to COVID. We'd seen more price increases in the past, I'd say, year and a half than are, I mean, leaps and bounds ahead of what we'd seen as a business. And I've been in the industry for 15 years. And I, I, I'd i say there have been more price increases in the last year than, or at least, no, nah, probably greater than, greater than or equal to being in the industry for approximately 15 years, actually right at 15 years. And, and there's more coming. That's the crazy thing is there's more coming because again, we still have this artificial shortage of plywood and lumber products it's also increasing wait times like the other thing is crazy like our normal our normal wait time to fulfill an order was on average two to three weeks unless something custom needed to be done and even then it was four to six i got off the phone with a custom manufacturer yesterday and their lead time is 18 weeks to which i said how are you even open Like that, that's ridiculous. You're pulling numbers out of the air because an 18 week lead time tells me that you're not sure when you're going to get, why does it say no data? Oh, excellent connection. Okay. Sorry. YouTube is weird sometimes. Okay. Where was I? 18 month lead time. Okay. If it's going to take you 18 months to fulfill an order, how are you still in business? Like What that tells me is that you're not even sure when you're going to get your material, so you're just throwing it as far out as you believe to be reasonable. And that's that's honestly how I took it. And I just had another phone call today. Uh, Regular lead time for one company was four to six weeks for eh, not quite custom, but they made it it to order. Four to six weeks normal lead time, which, again, that's not outrageous in this industry. Uh, Then they raised it to eight weeks. And I literally just this evening... I had a conversation with my representative from that company and I was informed that there was an additional two week lead time put on top of it to which I said, okay, but is it, is it really 10 weeks or is this just the company saying, we don't know? And he kind of paused for a minute and he said, we don't know. Great. (laughs) And there he point Blake said, this is all because they cannot get regular amounts of plywood compared to what they were getting before. And so that long drawn out story is basically to illustrate what's really going to suck about this is the fact that because this will even out once production meets demand. This will even out except the immediate price of the material will go down or maybe it will, maybe it won't. It might just stay where it is and people will line their pockets, which is probably what's going to happen. But certainly the cost of finished goods, I don't anticipate these things going down. The cost of lumber, like raw lumber, might go down. But as far as uh, like things that are made with this lumber, like cabinetry and flooring, for example, I don't foresee those going down. If they do, I would be legitimately surprised. I've only seen one company do a price reduction once in my entire career. And I think, honestly, they felt guilty because I'm pretty sure they just mispriced their line beforehand. And they thought they were going to get called on it, so they did a price reduction. Sorry about that, everybody. Had to uh, switch the audio input. Sorry for the delay. I know it probably sounds a little bit different, but we'll continue on with the show. Where was I? Sorry, I lost my train of thought there because I kind of saw that coming. Everybody who's listening on Spotify and I was like, what happened? We're a new podcast. Give us a break. Uh, Oh, yeah. So price reductions. I don't foresee. And that's the part that's really going to suck, because even though the supply chain is going to get back into into a normal flow of things and inflation will go back down to normal levels, the price of these goods is probably not going to uh, go back down, which theoretically is okay because, again, when inflation goes back down to normal level, it's not that your dollar is going to be worth more. It's just going to have the buying power that it should have had without the uh, economic recession, not I meaning mean recession, the economic downturn or the stagflationary uh, cycle. This actually might end up being a really short podcast because uh, we're about just shy of 30 minutes in and I am running out of stuff to talk about. So, some of you may be wondering, but Jake, everybody's saying it's so bad, they don't know... You know how it's going to get bad. First of all, to show you how bad it is not, I'm going to give you a couple of examples of actual hyperinflation that have already happened, one of which is still going on actually, and why it happened. And then you can see how it's different, but what we need to avoid doing to not get that far. The first one I'm going to bring up is the obvious one Venezuela. So, Venezuela has. I would bring up Zimbabwe, but I'm not exactly sure what's going on with that. Um, I don't know enough details, but suffice it to say, Zimbabwe held the record, or I think they still hold the record for hyperinflation, but Venezuela is on par to exceed it. So the condensed version of what happened with Venezuela is there was a lot of bad economic policy and the fact that the country's wealth was essentially dependent on one export, which was oil. Things happened. The price of oil went down. I believe the lowest point, I think in the early 2000s, it was right around $100 a barrel. And then it went down, progressively it went down to $33 a barrel, which doesn't, I mean, that's 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 a really, really big reduction when you consider how much oil is being exported and bought and sold. So the problem is Venezuela, Venezuela's government had not held on to any money in the case of an economic downturn, and they spent literally a ton of money on these social programs that everybody thought was great. This is what Bernie Sanders was raving about when he said Venezuela was the example that should be followed, and that socialism will work. We have a chat! Poten's 300, not good. No, it is not good. Not good at all. And as we've seen what's happening in Venezuela. And again, just going to kind of sling some shit in the socialist way because I like to sling shit to socialists and communists. It's okay. Debate me. I'm happy to debate you on here. But yeah, socialism's always great until something goes wrong. And then Exhibit A... Venezuela, you ask any Venezuelan, I get, I will bet money on this, I'll bet 20 BAT tokens, you ask any Venezuelan that has come to the United States from Venezuela in the last, I'll even give you, in the last two to three years, and ask them which place they would rather live, I will bet you money they will not say Venezuela. Venezuela with the only caveat being that if they have family there. From an economic perspective, they will tell you the United States pretty much anywhere but Venezuela every time. Guarantee, I will take that bet. And if you if you can show me somebody that moved from Venezuela to the United States in the last three years, and they honestly can tell me they preferred life in Venezuela economically, then I will give you 20 BAT tokens. I will stand by that. Share the video, like, share, and subscribe. Tell your friends. Let's find let's find somebody to win that bet. I will I will take that. So but long story short, you have now seen just an amazing level of hyperinflation in Venezuela. And it all kind of started because once the value of oil went down, the government wasn't making as much money, couldn't uphold their social programs. And since everything was run and distributed by the government, they were not able to provide the basic needs of the people, which included food, social services and social needs in the in the in the form of fire department, police department, medical. Everything. And that's why you're having. But. Again, when the state runs everything, you can complain. And when you try to complain, they have a tendency to shoot you. Or at least shoot at you. Or beat you. You know, it's kind of like dealer's choice at that point. Well, the government's the dealer, so it's kind of dealer's choice at that point. But you get the idea. And that is why people are literally, (laughs) literally sifting through garbage. And I've heard stories of people... You know, obviously eating dogs and in some case, some stories of people actually breaking into the zoo and eating the starving animals that were in there. So, yeah, that's hyperinflation is not good. And then the other example, which more history buffs are aware of, this is post World War One Germany. Uh, not quite to the Weimar, Weimar Republic, but kind of in, in between years is when this all started to happen. Again, I'll give you the condensed version. So after World War I, Germany got the brunt of the punishment because the Austro Austro Hungarian Empire was broken up uh, for the most part, with the exception of Austria. Austria Hungary. Austria. It was Austria and Hungary, but you get the idea. That empire was broken up. Germany lost quite a bit of land, um, including some agricultural area, which was no bueno. Or Nishkut. Yeah, that's more appropriate. But the big. The big thing and it had a massive reduction in their armed forces uh, most of the Navy was uh, destroyed and the entire air Force was grounded. And the standing army was reduced to I believe, I believe the standing army. My memory's failing me. It was less than a hundred thousand, but I can't remember what the actual figure was, but it, it was significantly lowered. But like I said, the big one is the brunt of the war reparations was put on Germany. And Germany, having come out of a war, obviously did not have the money in its coffers to pay for this. And the bill was a due. So, like any sensible country, they took out a bunch of loans. So they racked up their national debt. And then they made the mistake of printing money. Now, printing money as a short-term solution is not necessarily bad. I mean, it's not good. But it's it's not awful. I mean, we're talking a real temporary band-aid here, particularly when your currency is not tied to something like gold or something tangible. Because then the value of your currency is you can you can cheat it to a certain degree. China's been doing this for quite a long time. When you're locked into something like a gold standard, you're kind of locked into whatever the demand for gold is, which long term is a very good thing because your currency is tied to something tangible. So as long as that tangible thing is sought after and wanted, which why would you tie your currency to something that wasn't in demand? I don't know. It's like the petrodollar, you know, that same example. It's tied to oil. So it's tied to a tangible thing, which is one of the reasons why the dollar has yet to collapse, is because it is very strongly tied to oil, and it is still the the preferred international exchange currency. Most places will accept U.S. dollars for trade currency. Now, if that changes, the dollar situation is no bueno and niche it's, it's not good. Not good. Not good at all. So anyway, we're in Germany, and they are printing money like crazy to pay these debts. Now, what this does is it immensely, insanely devalues their currency in a very, very, very short amount of time. It got so bad to the point where workers in a factory were paid twice daily. Yes, you heard me right, twice daily, because their wages, their wage rate in the morning was not the same in the afternoon. And there are real photographs of people bringing home their pay, their their money in wheelbarrows because they were being given so many bills because the inflation was so high. Yes, they were being paid a lot, but the cost of living just was skyrocket. And there was one a nurse in Venezuela that was quoted as saying, we're millionaires, but we can't afford to eat. So it kind of gives you some perspective on what inflation actually looks like. It's like, yes, you are getting a lot of money, but the money is worthless which I really wish somebody would go into Congress right now and explain to them this concept because and the Democrats especially seem to have a tough time with this, but trust me, the Republicans are ignorant to how money works too. But the Democrats seem particularly uh, just ignorant to this fact is giving people more money is not necessarily the answer. certainly not the most important answer. What is important, is people having enough of a currency that actually is worth something and this is what they don't seem to understand is yes i understand the concept of a minimum wage and i'm not disputing that and i understand that wages need to keep up with inflation for the most part they do the problem arises when you have at least when you have a perception of a class of people who are working at, and, and I quote, air quotes, slave wages, which I'm not even going to get, actually I will get into the absurdity of a comment like that. A slave wage is non-existent. Stop using it. The term slave wage makes no sense unless that wage is zero. Because if you are being paid for your work, you are, oh, okay. The history buffs are going to get me on this one. Because, yes, some slaves were allowed to make money in the American South, but they were not the they were not the norm. They were the exception. And usually they didn't get to keep their money. It, that was kind of dependent on. Uh, and I really don't even want to say this. I don't even want to say it was de- it was dependent on the person who owned them because I don't I don't want to say the word master. Uh, it was dependent on the, the person who uh, owned them. God, I just threw up a little bit in my mouth saying that, but I. Um, I think we can all agree that a slave wage should be equated to zero. Now, living wage, they can't even define what that means, because theoretically a living wage is a wage that is above the poverty line. But the poverty line is arbitrary. That's decided by a bunch of people who carry briefcases into work that don't actually contain anything. But I digress. We're getting off on a tangent. So long story short, Germany experiences super hyperinflation. Now they're eventually able to correct this by a number of monetary reforms and basically restructuring the terms of the repayment of their war debts, basically saying like, listen, like we can't handle this all at once. You've got to let us make payments on it. And we have to restructure our currency and we have to use some of this money to rebuild our economy so that we can eventually pay it. Everybody agreed and Germany recovered, quite miraculously actually, uh, not even if you think about it. I mean, there was ah, cannot remember his name. The new, uh, the new German finance minister was actually on uh, given a Nobel Prize, Nobel Peace Prize, I believe. He was either Nobel Peace Prize or Man of the Year, some some accolade that he really, really deserved. Mostly by creating a new currency that was tied to something tangible. I believe it was actually tied to the U.S. dollar, if memory serves. Um, it, it was the currency that would become the Reichmark. The Reichmark, Um, I forget what it was called at the time, but it would eventually become the Reichmark. But at the time, it was tied to the U.S. dollar. I believe it was four Reichmarks to one U.S. dollar, if my memory is correct. And they basically destroyed all the old notes and recycled them. And there was a cap on the number of bills that could be printed. So basically, they immediately stopped printing money, created a new currency that was now... It had higher value because there was less of it. And then a bunch of other economic reforms so that what this currency was tied to uh, put a control on the supply and the demand. But a natural control, a market-based control. So Germany gets out of the depression and then we all know what happens next. So, But anyway, that is the story of German hyperinflation post-World War One, And there's so many videos on YouTube and the History Channel used to have things about this. Now it's just... Pawn Stars, and which I like Pawn Stars, but it's just, it's nonsense now. I cannot stand the History Channel anymore. I don't think I've actually watched live History Channel in like three years. That's sad. But an interesting note, for those of you that love the old History Channel, they've uploaded a lot of their old series to YouTube, and it's free. So check that out. For sure, and it's just History's YouTube channel. So it's not even pirating. So what we're talking about is not hyperinflation hyperinflation yet. However, like I said at the beginning, it is possible that this could happen, but there's a few things that have to happen. Unfortunately, they're on track. So if we want to stop hyperinflation, we need to pretty much immediately stop the printing of money through. And again, we're going to get into a fairly complicated thing. Uh, When Gary Johnson ran for president in 2016, he he quoted a stat very, very often. As of 2016, for every dollar spent in the United States, basically 42 cents of it was either borrowed or printed. And I'm sure that number is way up after all the COVID stimulus bills. So you actually do have a perfect recipe for disaster here, at least if it weren't in the United States, because we've literally added... I know it's been more than, I think we've added $5 trillion to the already, I believe it was $21 trillion. So we're, we're, we should be, if my math is correct, if my memory and math are correct, we should be approaching $30 trillion in national debt. And I'm actually going to look this up real quick. So I'm not talking out of my ass. U.S. national debt. This will come right up. (laughs) Yeah. And by the way, you have U.S. debt clock in real time. Holy shit! Yeah, we're we're approaching uh, thirty trillion. That is insane. Rounding rounding down, we're at twenty eight trillion four hundred billion, hundred eighty one almost hundred eighty two million. That's that's creepy. Oh, you I don't think you can see it because the brightness is too high. Let me see if I can turn it down. Yeah, you you can't see that, but see all those numbers going. That is crazy. Oh, Gate.io will delist BU. Nice, but you get my drift. That number has skyrocketed, because again of the uh, the COVID relief bills, and basically all that money was borrowed. I I'd wager to say almost, if not all of it, almost all of it was borrowed or printed. Now, the one thing that's kind of been the U.S.'s saving grace here is mainly two things. And again, this is just my perspective. But this is from how I see it is the fact that our dollar is tied heavily to oil and international trade. It is a trade currency around the world. In fact, it's so much of a trade currency. And I I believe this is changing because I don't remember who told me this. And I haven't substantiated it, but I believe it. So El Salvador uses the U.S. dollar as its currency. However... I was told they are switching over to a cryptocurrency, so that could be interesting. El Salvador's economy isn't enough to really put a dent in the U.S. economy, but it's again, it's one more thing that just hits the value of the dollar because it's less sought after. And then the other thing is the diversification of the U.S. basically export market. So the U.S., our exports are not limited to one product like Venezuela. I mean, Venezuela probably exported more things, but its main export was oil. And that was the main money making endeavor for the government. And plus, it was all run by the government. So the US exports, so many things We're to this day, we're still the largest exporter of national natural gas, sorry, which is huge. And that's one of the reasons why you saw a lot of economic booming happening in and around the Trump administration was because almost overnight, we became the largest exporter in the world of natural gas. So that led to a lot of Really, really good benefits for the American people. And your and your wallet. And then the other, so those are the main two things that are kind of keeping the U.S. still up, despite of our insane monetary policy. And again, I'm not just slinging shit at the Democrats here, because plenty of Republicans have spent money just on different things they just can't agree on what they want to spend their money on they just like to spend your money ah so but yeah like i said i'm not really too afraid of hyperinflation and i apologize for the going back and forth again i didn't have time to write out a format so i'm kind of going i'm going off cuff here so don't worry i know it's not our best episode but again, like I said, I'm not really afraid. At least personally, I'm not really afraid of super hyperinflation happening. I mean, it's gonna be a little rough for a while. And this is kind of the problem with the competing economic theories here, because again, one of the reason people one of the reasons people aren't feeling as much of a pinch is because of the uh, COVID unemployment benefits, the increased unemployment benefits. So <laughs> I mean, a lot of people are being paid more than their job paid. Which is leading to another economic problem we're having, which is a labor shortage. Now, anybody who knows me personally has heard me bitch moan and complain about this for the past few years. America's had a labor problem for a very long time. It's just now really bad because, I mean, for all intents and purposes, people are being paid to stay home. And I'm going to put, I don't have the tinfoil hat here with me, but I'm going to put on my conspiracy, my my figurative conspiracy cap here, I find it very interesting that in the 2016 presidential election, more than a few people were talking about universal basic income. It had been talked about before, but it was, I mean, it was a major talking point, not just with Andrew Yang, although he was very much the champion of it, It was being talked about and is still being talked about by a lot of Democrats, sitting Democrats today. So I find the timing very interesting. So we have a global pandemic, and all of a sudden, and under a Republican president, no less. This is why I still, this is a real conspiracy that Trump was a closet Democrat the whole time. I just find the timing curious that we essentially have kind of the beta, the beta test version of a universal basic income. And another thing that I've said before, and I will say it again, you know, that money was supposed to help people that were struggling. I saw a lot of TVs being bought. I saw a lot of decks going up. Saw a lot of food getting bought. Sure. But, I saw a lot of recreational things happening. And I would say they probably outweighed. I mean, I cannot tell you. I saw so many TVs getting bought. It was ridiculous. Big TVs, too. Yeah, not small ones. And then a lot of people you hear, and again, this is all anecdotal, but you heard a lot of people taking that money and investing it. Investing it in stocks. And a lot of crypto investment happened. People were literally, I I heard more than one story of people taking their entire stimulus check and throwing it into cryptocurrency hope that worked out for you actually a lot of people there were excuse me there were a lot of people that took that and invested it into uh gamestop and amc when all that was going down actually one guy called into the dave ramsey show i think yeah he did (laughs) and he made a killing so we got lucky but i guess my point being is that i don't they always make it sound so much worse on the news. And I'm, it's worse out there than what I saw, I'm sure, because, again, I work in a fairly affluent area and I don't exactly li- I don't exactly live. In, it's not the greatest area, but it's certainly not. I wouldn't call it the slums. You know what I mean? It, But from what I see, most people that I know either still worked or most of them actually got to work from home. I don't really know anybody that, quote, unquote, lost their job. And again, that's that's anecdotal because I don't know a lot of people that are in the food service industry. And if I did, they were still working, but they had shorter hours. And I agree, that sucked. And for those types of people, the unemployment benefits were great. And again, a lot of a lot of people asked. They were surprised at my reaction to the stimulus payments, and I disagree with a lot of Republicans on this one. There's two reasons why I was, I wouldn't say I was for it, but I kind of accepted it. First one reason being is that I, I didn't have the option to opt out. So it's like, I know I'm going to have to pay this back, not directly, but if you, and I said it then, and I'll say it now, if you honestly think, regardless if Trump had won the election or Biden had won the election, and we know Biden did. Regardless of who won that election, if you honestly thought that there wasn't going to be a massive tax hike after all that, you were clinically insane. It's going to happen. It's already happening. But it's going to get it's going to get worse and that I can pretty well guarantee you because it just it, it doesn't 7 trillion dollars in a year. Like there's going to have to be some increased tax revenue. It's going to happen. So being that I couldn't opt out, I figured I'm going to pay for this anyway. Might as well take that money and make good use of it, which I did. And then the other reason was, like, let's look at it this way. Let's compare this to the bailout of 2008 when all that money went to businesses. At least this time around, they actually paid individuals. So if you're going to bail out, I mean, at least bail out the people, especially when the government caused this mess in the first place, the only part of that that sucks is it's not the government's money, it's your money. Because the government gets its money from you. So that payment that they gave you was not a gift from the government. The unemployment benefits that you're getting is not a gift from the government. That is them taking your money, that is them giving you money now, and then they're going to take exponentially more from you later. Guaranteed. Particularly if you make more money. Because of the progressive tax system in the United States. <laughs> the irony is that a lot of people who didn't even qualify for those payments because they make too much money are the ones that are gonna bear the bulk. And again, I will argue with I'll argue with the lefties on this one too. I, I will straight up argue with the lefties on this one because <laughs> according to an article that Dave Ramsey read aloud on his radio show, of Americans do not pay income tax by the time it's all said and done. Like, they might pay in, but by the time they get their refund, they're getting what they paid in and money from the government in addition to that. So they are coming out net positive. 52%. That means that 48% of Americans pay all the taxes. The fact of the matter is, the United States has one of the most progressive tax systems in the world. That's a fact, and I, I've brought this up on the podcast before. But there's a uh, there's a channel on YouTube called Two Cents, and they they have a great video on the U.S. tax code. I even learned some stuff from it that I didn't know. Like it makes me feel better about making more money because I thought I was going to get screwed. I still get screwed a little bit, but not as screwed, not as screwed as I thought I would. But so those are basically the main, the, but the main reason I'm not afraid of hyperinflation is because again, as I've been drilling in this entire episode, this is artificial. And to kind of point this out, I have some stats for you. Let's just compare, shall we? Now, we're all aware of the, I wouldn't even call it a depression, but the the recession of the late 1970s before Reagan came into office. And whether it was because of Reaganomics or a natural recovery, long story short, the economy got better. As to why people argue about that, probably a combination of both, like it always is. You know, we kind of get in. There's an argument with various historians and schools of economic thought as to whether the New Deal under FDR or World War II brought America out of the Depression. Some argue that the New Deal actually prolonged the Depression. Uh, I'm more in the camp of, I, I think the New Deal provided some immediate relief, but I do think it prolonged it. But by prolonging it, it probably made it less severe in the long run. So again, that's an example of Probably both sides being a little bit right and a little bit wrong. It was somewhere in the middle. What I honestly think happened, I think the econ- in the case of the Great Depression, it's my personal belief and opinion that the economic recovery would have been faster without the New Deal, but it would have been more painful. So take that what you will. I believe that's basically what happened in the 70s. It was a longer recovery, but it was less painful. But just to give you kind of a stat, the average mortgage interest rate in 1981 Was 17%. The average mortgage rate today for a 30 year fixed rate, 2.8%. The Federal Reserve is literally giving out loans to banks for for cash to have on hand at 0% interest. And Biden, at one point or another, actually is calling for negative interest rates. I'll say that again negative interest rates, which means the Federal Reserve would pay banks to take money. I'm gonna let that sink in. The Federal Reserve would pay banks to take money. And here is why that is stupid. Actually really stupid if you think of it because which of the two parties hates millionaires the most? Right, the Democrats, we all know that. So what do you think is going to happen when you pay millionaires to take money? Because they believe that all these bankers and all these millionaires are just hoarding the money and they're not investing in anything. That's true for some of them. So your bright idea to help spur the economy is to give millionaires money for taking money. Okay, and what's more is they're going to pay for this money by printing more money through the Treasury to give to the Federal Reserve to exchange for securities from these banks. Yeah, let's hope that doesn't happen because that would be a terrible, that would be just an awful idea. Oh, and then for some perspective on the inflation of that, the other set I have is that that same mortgage rate three years prior in 1978 was 10%. So in three years, the mortgage rate went up seven percent, and our mortgage rates have been steadily going down. Like I, I remember, I bought I bought I bought a property last year, at the end of last year, and my interest rate was three point one two five percent, which is crazy, because the house I bought before, granted it was a more expensive house, but still, I think I think that rate was four point six, I believe. I'm going off of memory. But I digress. Interest rates are going down. Now, the Fed keeps bouncing around the idea of maybe raising those interest rates more, but they're afraid to. And again, this happened after the 08 downturn as well. Quantitative easing is the term that they used. Also, fun fact, uh, depending on the wood species and the type of plywood, for a 4x8 sheet, on average, from a place like Lowe's, you're looking at between 60 to $90 a sheet, which is that high. That is quite high. So we're wrapping it up now. You've listened to my rambling long enough. We'll keep this a little bit shorter because I'm just afraid I'm going to ramble. But, and again, disclaimer, this is just my opinion. What do you? What do I think you should do right now with the economic situation we're in? Well, the first thing I would tell you is kind of hold off on buying a house right now. Because you will be paying too much for that house. It's almost guaranteed if you get it at all. I would highly recommend sitting on your current living situation for as long as you can. Until, again, the supply problem corrects itself. And we get some more housing inventory. Because that's the main issue with the house prices. Is the lack of inventory. I'm going to tell you guys right now. The house that I sold to get the down payment for the one I'm living in now. I cannot believe how much I got for that house. Like it was a shit show. It was 80% renovated, AC, no AC unit. It had died. There was a window unit that I actually ended up... I, I ended up leaving it there because I didn't want to mess with it. But the original purchase agreement said it wasn't going to be included in the house. Um, it was dilapidated on the outside for the most part. The, entire, the fence was basically falling over. And I, I got a stupid amount of money for that house. I mean, it was stupid. It was... Stupid. I asked my realtor, am I crazy? He's like, well, in this market, you're not. So, yeah, I just, I, I, I cannot believe it. And I would wager to say, I'm not going to tell you how much I paid for it, but I'd wager to say that the value of the house I'm currently in, just by virtue of it sitting here, has probably gone up, I mean, I'd wager to say it's gone up by at least 10000 if not more, just because it's here. But anyway, I digress. My advice to you would be sit tight where you're living right now. Do everything you can to keep your job. If you don't have a job right now, get one. It's never been easier. Literally. I've seen more help wanted signs around now than I have in my entire life. Other piece of advice I would give for you is to, uh, if you have any debt, do everything you can to get out of it because if the if there is an economic downturn, your debt is gonna be the number one thing crippling you. Guaranteed. And in order to do that, I highly recommend Dave Ramsey's book, The Total Money Makeover. It will change your life. I highly recommend this. I follow the plan. Actually, for a long time, I didn't follow the plan exactly. And I was like, why can't I get ahead? And then I started following the plan verbatim and holy crap, it worked. Who'd have thought, right? You know, kind of like uh, you eat right and exercise, you lose weight, Who'd a thought? It's crazy how this stuff works. Um, the other thing I would recommend you do is get free money whenever you can. And how can you get free money? <laughs> by by participating in our contest. Listen, $20 in BAT is not going to make you rich, but if you trade it for something else and it hits big, could make you rich. And all you have to do... Is get people to subscribe to our channel. You have till the end of July for us to get to 100 subscriber The for us to get to 100 subscribers, and the person that brings us the most new subscribers gets twenty dollars BAT transferred directly to them. Which BAT is tradable on Uphold, so you can put it in your Uphold wallet and use it to trade to whatever cryptocurrency you want. Because even if it's not on uphold, you can do what I did with Shiba Inu, transfer it to another wallet where you can trade for whatever currency you want. It's actually quite simple. So I will leave you with this. Don't believe the fear-mongering. Because, of course, they profit from keeping people scared. Recognize the situation for what it is. This is a government-created economic downturn an inflation spike and it will pass because it there have been many, many worse times before this one will be a drop in the bucket in terms of economic history. We'll always remember the, the the COVID pandemic, but I doubt history will remember a significant economic downturn. It will be a footnote at best. That's my prediction. So hang in there, stay sane Pay off debts, if you can, as fast as you can. Honestly, that should be a priority. I know there's tons of YouTube channels that say you should be saving money and throw it into Bitcoin. You shouldn't be investing anything if you have debt. At least nothing of substance. Like, if you're trying to buy into a crypto that you think might hit big, as long as you're not spending a ton of money, and certainly if you're not going into debt for it, I mean, whatever, you do you. But your priority should be not having anything that could drag you down if... There is an economic downturn. And that's the best advice I can give you. Which I advise that in a bad economic situation or a good economic situation, because as Mr. Ramsey says, your number one wealth, yeah, your number one wealth-building tool is your income. And if all of your income is going to creditors, you do not have any economic power. And for further example of this. You remember the story of the grasshopper and the ant. If you don't, you can Google it. That's all I got for tonight. Hope you all enjoyed it. We will have an announcement for that special episode and the Dr. Fauci guest starring episode once we determine who his co-host is. If you guys have any any ideas who you would like to see co-host with Dr. Fauci, leave them in the comments below. Or reach out to us via the anchor.fm messaging feature. This has been the Average Intelligence Podcast. I hope you all enjoyed it. And remember, just stay calm. Everything will be fine. And if it's not, we'll handle that. Because that's what we do. Goodbye.